The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. We continue tonight our study of the minor prophet of Jonah. You recall that we, on our first evening together, we studied the uh, book of Obadiah. We, we covered it all in, in one sitting. On the last Lord's Day evening, we gathered together and we began our study of, of Jonah. And it is, as I told you then, it's, it's one that everybody loves. You can ask the, uh, the youngest children some of the first Bible stories that they heard. And probably this is going to be among them, between Noah's Ark and uh, Jonah and the whale. Most everybody knows and loves these, loves these stories. But as I told you, when we first approach these minor prophets, much of what we will see playing out in these is a story about the sovereignty of the God of the universe who is providentially working all things according to his will. We'll see this because much of what the minor prophets are aimed at are nations. It's a word of judgment upon certain nations it's a word of encouragement upon other nations it's a word of hope oftentimes to people that have been dragged off into exile and we're reminded that the God of the universe that the God who we serve that the God who has promised to work all things for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose that there is nothing in this world that can thwart his plans and we see this very clearly in the life of a man called Jonah We see him moving storms and seas and even a giant fish and vines and the wind and bugs, all according to his purposes, all to reveal himself a little bit more to us, to show acts of mercy on behalf of a nation that had fallen into deep and ugly sin. So I ask you to go ahead and uh, turn in your Bibles, please, to Jonah, if you haven't already found it. It comes right after Obadiah, which we touched on, as I said A few weeks ago, we're going to begin reading in verse 4. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we might know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us, on whose account has this evil come upon us? What is your occupation? Where did you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the seas and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid, and they said to him, What is this thing that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up. And hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that the great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. 
Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not upon us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, has done, have done as it pleases you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. They offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. So if I were to make a movie about Jonah, and I was wondering as I was thinking about this this afternoon, is there a movie about Jonah that doesn't involve vegetables? Probably not. But if I were to make a movie about Jonah, I think that this would be my opening scene. I don't think that I would begin with the man alone with God. I think this would be the attention getter. A horrendous storm out at sea. Whipping up so much so that the, that the boat is breaking apart. You can just, I think you can sense it as you read it. This is a very brief explanation of what's happening here. Who knows how long this storm carried out out there on the water? Who, lo- who knows how long these men endured this great storm? Who knows how it whipped up upon them? But you can almost feel it just in these few short words. The storm comes, and the winds come, and the boards begin to, que- that begin to creak, and splinters begin to come off, and you can hear the people shouting up at the captain, she's breaking apart. We're not going to make it. This boat is going to sink. Now, you can learn a lot about just the weight of this storm and, and the terror of this storm based on the way that these men responded. These were seafaring men. These were sailors. These were not ordinary men that had never been out on a sea, that had never been in a boat like this. These were men that had probably been in many, many storms. They tell us that perhaps this trip that Jonah sought to take with these men, it would have taken as much as a year to get to where they were going. Out on the open seas for a year, you can imagine there's going to be many, many storms. But you can learn something based on the way these sailors, they responded with absolute terror. Now you have to imagine that there were other passengers on this boat like Jonah That struck great fear in their heart. If the professionals are afraid, we're in real trouble. I was thinking about when a man and I went on our honeymoon together. We went to to Jamaica, and what we did was we took a a big plane, a normal commercial plane, and we went to, I don't remember where, somewhere in Jamaica, and then we got on one of these little puddle jumpers, and we jumped to our desired destination. The small plane that we were on, it was probably, I don't know, a 20-passenger plane, something like that, and you could see the captain. Is he called a captain? Yeah, you, you could see the guy hit the front of the airplane that was flying it. And any time we would hit some turbulence, we could see all the way into the cockpit. There were no stewardesses. There was nothing between us and us and him. And any time we would hit some turbulence, I'd lean out in the aisle and immediately look at that guy to see if he was jumping out with a parachute. That told me what kind of trouble we were in. So if we hit something and that guy was just rocking along with one hand on his coffee and the other hand on the steering wheel, everything was probably okay. But if you hear him screaming, oh, God, we're going down, you knew you had a problem. So you can imagine if there were passengers on this boat like Jonah, and they see these men, these seasoned sailors freaking out, they know this is something big. This is perhaps something that they had never seen before. Now experts tell us that maybe because of the time of year when they would have been sailing, maybe they didn't expect this. Because you would have planned a trip like this. You would, have, you would have planned it according to the seasons, according to what storms you saw whipping up. They would have planned that this would not have been a time when they would have hit a storm this soon in their journeys, and yet they did. Now, if you read some of the more liberal commentaries on the story of Jonah, or you listen to some more, more liberal preachers, and I don't mean liberal in terms, of, um, in terms of politics, but in terms of theology, they'll immediately try to explain away things like this. The parting of the Red Sea, the flooding of the earth, the giant fish that comes and swallows Jonah, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They're always looking for natural answers. And oftentimes what happens is we play right into their hands because what do we do? 
we'll find out. There was, what was it, maybe a year ago, there was a kayaker up in Seattle somewhere, and a whale literally swallowed the guy and spit him out. Did y'all see this? Go Google it. And all of a sudden, Christians start running going, see, 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 Jonah and the whale must be true. Beloved, that has nothing to do with us. It's a cool story. But if you need to see it on YouTube in order to believe that it's true, you've already given up to ghosts. You, you, you've got to understand that when God chooses to work in these ways, when God chooses to work in supernatural ways, oftentimes those things aren't going to be repeated, and there's not going to be natural answers. And so even if we had never in our lifetime seen a whale swallow a kayaker and spit him back up, if God's word says it's true, then it must be true. We don't always have to be looking for the natural answers as to how a sea might part because a wind came from this direction and a wind came from that direction, and all of a sudden it dried out the land really quick and the Israelites were able to walk through. No, the scripture says that it happened. The scripture says that the sea parted. The scripture says that they walked through as on dry land. The scripture says that then the waters came back in and flooded out the, Israel, uh, the Egyptians that were following after the people of Israel. And so we don't need to find some type of natural explanation as to what happened because the scripture explicitly tells us where this storm came from. We know exactly where this wind came from. The scripture says God hurled it upon the sea. We must be a people that holds fast to God's word even when our ordinary senses, even when much of what we see in the world around us says that simply cannot happen. As I told you last week, we'll come to this story and people say that can't happen. It's unnatural for a whale to swallow a man. Of course, that's the point. It's what makes it a miracle. It's what makes it supernatural. So scripture tells us that this is exactly what's happened. Now, if I were writing the story, if I were playing this out in movie form for you, I would go there first and show you the storm and leave you to try to figure out what's happened. Leave you to try to figure out where this storm is coming from. Leave you to try to figure out why these men are freaking out. And then just about the time that your mind starts to come up with an explanation, then I would come you back, take you back to those first three verses. I would take you back to the story of Jonah alone with God. How God had come to the man and he had told him, I am sending you to Nineveh. I'm sending you to these evil people. The word of their evil, the word of their sin, it has risen up to heaven, it has reached my ears, and now I'm sending you to speak a word to them. And I would tell them about how Jonah received that word, and he ran. And he sought to go the opposite direction. And the foolishness, immediately you would know the foolishness. Having seen the storm that came upon the ocean, you would know immediately the foolishness of a man hearing a word from God and believing, I can escape this God. I can run far enough from this God. Now, as I told you last week, it seems to me that Jonah was not just seeking to flee from God, but that very likely he was also seeking to flee from the people of God. Because whenever we're running in rebellion against God, the last thing we want to do is look God's people in the eye and hear their voice. Have any chance that they're going to speak a word of counsel to us? Any chance that they're going to remind us of the command that God has given us? And so I would take the people at that point back to those first three verses and start to unfold the scene for them about the fact that this happened sometime around 760, 750 B.C., as I told you last week, and how previously in Jonah's life as a prophet, he had been used of God to speak a word of hope to the people of Israel. He had told them that they were going to recapture some land that had previously been theirs under the kingdom of King David, but that had then been lost. I would tell them then about the fact that sometime after Jonah's prophecy to the people in Nineveh, the people of Assyria had come and they would capture the Israelites and drag them off into exile. And so I would have given you an insight, a peek, I believe, into Jonah's heart. We see this towards the end of the story as Jonah tells God, see God, isn't this what I told you would happen? You see, Jonah's fear about going to Nineveh wasn't that God would destroy the people, it was that he would spare them. 
Jonah knew that God was a gracious and merciful God. Jonah knew that by very nature of him sending a prophet to the people and calling them to account for their sin, that implied within this was the opportunity for repentance. About a hundred years, a little bit more than a hundred years after the prophet Jonah, we read the prophet Jeremiah speaking a word from God saying that if I speak destruction upon a nation, that nation hears my warning, they repent and they turn to me, I will not do this thing which I have promised. He knew that this was in the nature of God. We see what an incredible gift it is for the God of the universe to send someone to us to warn us about impending doom and judgment. So this was where we are leading up to this morning's or this evening's text. We, of course, know that there is nowhere we can run to escape the hand of God. It is God who has hurled, he he has thrown this wind upon the sea. Now, the sea was already a terrifying thing for the Hebrew people. They were people who spent much time on the sea, particularly you think about Jesus and his friends. They spent much time on the Sea of Galilee. And if you've ever been there, it really is just a big lake. It's a beautiful lake. It's a lake that has mountains at one end of it that really do form a wind tunnel where a a storm can whip up very, very quickly. But it's not like the open sea. And so the people, the Hebrew people, they were terrified of the thought of the ocean the depths of the ocean. It was a wild thing, a primordial thing. It was, it was a place filled with monsters and, and unknown type animals. So it was already a terrifying thing for them to be out on the sea like this. But then to hear that the God whom they loved, the God whom they served, the God whom they feared would throw a great wind upon this sea and whip it up to the point that the boat that they were meant to seek safety in was cracking apart, that would have been truly terrifying. And yet the people of God, they would have surely known as they had heard the words of King David throughout the Psalms, they would have surely known that this God whom they serve, he is the God who has formed the sea. We read in Proverbs 8.29 that he has assigned the sea its limits so that the waters might not transgress his command and he marked out all the foundations of the earth. That this is the God who has formed the seas in their places. He has told the earth where it will form up together. He has told the ocean that you will come this far and no further. He is the God of the sea. He is controlled over everything that is. And yet we're reminded that as Jonah seeks to run from God, he finds himself out here on this boat thinking that he is going to somehow escape the hand of God or the word of God or at least the people of God. We're reminded that God has Jonah right where he wants him. I told you last week how fortunate it would have seemed to Jonah as he goes down to uh, Joppa seeking a boat in order to go to Tarshish. And what do you know, what does he find there? A boat to Tarshish. That the God of the universe will hand you the very thing you need to run from him so that he can put you right where he wants you. He had led Jonah into this place. Was Jonah sinful in running from God? Absolutely. Was Jonah in rebellion against God? Absolutely. Yet we're reminded that God was at no part, no point caught off guard by this. And I couldn't help but be reminded of what the scriptures have said about Pharaoh about the purposes that God had for Pharaoh and placing him in this position of power and then the ways in which God would come against him. He says this, Romans 9, 17, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. How much less would we know about God had he not led Jonah to just this place? Or how much less exciting would the story have been had he just said, hey, Jonah, go to Nineveh. Jonah said, deal, I'm going to Nineveh. Jonah goes to Nineveh, he, pro- he proclaims the word and the people repent. Yet God had a desire to show his power. God had a desire to show the links to which he will go to lead people to repentance. He had a desire to show us that there's no running from him. There's no escaping him, even on the ocean. And so 
In a desire to reveal more of himself and the way in which he got this word of repentance to Nineveh, he led Jonah to this place right here. Verse 5, then the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God. Now these men, they knew that it was going to require something or someone more powerful than them to calm this storm. They knew it was going to require something more powerful than the storm to save them. And so it appears as though these were some polytheistic guys, and yet their prayer is commendable, isn't it? It's at some level that they knew that there's something outside and above myself, and I must offer a prayer to them. As I told you, these were seafaring people, probably Phoenician people. They would have had a, a myriad of gods, and certainly one of those gods would have been a god of the sea. People that spend time on the sea, they need to know who is the god of this sea. They would have known how rough and unpredictable the sea can be. Again, the monsters that lurk in the deep. And so each of them is crying out to his own God in their terror. And there's something, again, I say, commendable about that at least. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. Now, we don't know fully what the purpose of this ship was, but it seems to me that in large part it was a cargo ship. Apparently, they also took passengers on there. And you'll remember that the scripture tells us that Jonah paid his fee. So they gained money by taking passengers on this ship. But they're taking some of this cargo, at least a portion of the reason why they're on the sea in the first place, and they're jettisoning it as quickly as they can. We're reminded that whenever God shows up in this way, whenever he shows himself to be a terror on those who do evil, those things that we thought to be our very purpose in life, all of a sudden they don't matter anymore. That oftentimes this can be an act of love from God. He can just refocus our affections He can recapture our attention and remind us that the thing that you're giving your life to, you're going to quickly throw it overboard whenever I show up and tell you, tonight I very well may demand your life. So we see this. They're throwing it overboard and says they did this in part to lighten it for them. I don't know if this means to lighten it so that the boat will ride a little bit higher and perhaps there'll be some safety in this. Perhaps was this a desire to, to appease this God, whoever he may be. It would have been certainly been a people who were, who were familiar with the idea of offering something to God in order to appease him, in order to, to quiet his wrath. We see when we get to verse 11 that he says, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? That there's this tit-for-tat idea within their religion, that if I can just offer him the right thing, that if I can give him the right sacrifice, then surely God will turn away in his anger from us. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the, part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. We find that this man, this prophet, this one who had heard the voice of God, this one who had spoken on behalf of God. Now, it it occurred, occurred to me as I was thinking this afternoon, I don't know for sure that when Jonah prophesied to King Jeroboam that they would recapture some of the portion of the northern territory of Israel, I don't know for sure this happened before this moment. This may have been after. We don't know for sure. Because the story of Jonah leaves, leaves us off with Jonah just sitting there just pouting under, a, under the hot sun. But one way or another, this is a man who had definitely heard the word of God. He is a prophet who had been chosen and set apart by God. And what do we see him doing? He's offering no practical help. He's not awake helping them to throw the stuff overboard. He's not there offering a prayer. He's not explaining to them yet what's happened. The scripture tells us that he's fast asleep. This is a deep sleep. This isn't a he's trying to close his eyes and pretend like he doesn't see anything. I used to do that when our kids were little. The babies would cry and I'd pretend like I was asleep and it wasn't worth waking me up and so I'm you just now learning this. And she would go and, and deal with this. This wasn't what Jonah was doing. Scripture says that he was literally asleep, in a deep sleep. Was this a result of some type of depression, spiritual depression that had come over him? 
we're reminded that whenever we're living in sin against God, particularly when it's known sin, sin that we're aware of, it's exhausting. It's a hard thing to run from God. It's a hard thing. I, I told you, was it last week? Perhaps I've told you in the recent past. I think part of the reason we keep this world around us so loud all the time is we're terrified of what God's going to confront us with. We're terrified of the sins he's going to bring to the surface. We're terrified of the things that he's going to call us, even not with regards to necessarily sin, just the things he's going to ask us to do or to give, the person he's going to ask us to reach out to and be reconciled to. It's exhausting. It's an exhausting thing. Or was this some type of a supernatural sleep that God had put upon Jonah for this purpose? I think about Adam in the Garden of Eden, that God had caused a deep sleep to come over Adam, like an anesthesia, uh, anesthesia, that he could then do surgery on Adam, removing one of his ribs, and then he could wake him up, and there stands his, there stands his bride. We don't, we don't know for sure. Or perhaps it was just a complete lack of concern. Was, was Jonah's conscience completely so seared? How much more terrifying would that be? It's one thing to say that Jonah was exhausted from fighting and wrestling with God. That, that's, that's one concept. But to believe that the man's conscience would be so seared that he could sleep like a baby knowing that he was running from God. We're reminded that we must take great care with the way that we treat our own conscience. That little alarm bell, that, that gift that God has given us that must be informed by his word must be sensitive to the Spirit, that the Scripture warns us that we must not silence it. Scripture tells us that we're to treat so precious our conscience that even about things that may not be explicitly sin, things like food or things like drink, that when we feel conviction in our heart that this is something that we shouldn't or we should do, that it would be sin to go against our conscience even when we can't find something in this Word that tells us it's sin. Are you following me? That there's danger when your heart tells you, listen, your, your conscience is speaking to you and it's saying what you must do today is you need to go to that elderly neighbor's house and you need to mow her lawn for her. And you, you feel this. This is real conviction. This isn't just a thought. There's some conviction in your spirit that this is a thing that you should do. Or your heart tells you that you must go make right with this person that up until that moment you didn't even know you were wrong with them. That to silence that doubt or to silence that alarm bell that goes off in your, in your, in your body. That it's an abuse of your conscience. And then eventually, like a baby, have you ever had a baby that came into your home that, that had been neglected for some time? And the baby no longer cries when it's hurt. The baby no longer cries when it's wet. The baby no longer cries when it's hungry because it knows nobody's listening to me anyway. There can become a time when your conscience doesn't cry out to you, does not convict you in those times when it should. Maybe that's what's going on with Jonah here. We don't know. But either way, the scripture says that he was fast asleep. Verse 6. So the captain came. We don't know if the captain was, was running around helping to get stuff from down below to throw it overboard. Had the other sailors come and found this guy sleeping, and they're like, I don't even understand how this is possible, and they go and alert the captain. We don't know, but the captain comes, and he says, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Now, you remember the word that came to Jonah in the beginning from God, and I don't want to make too much of this because it's not an abnormal word necessarily, but arise. That's what God had said to him. Arise, go to Nineveh. So we see the word of God haunting him, even, it, even as it comes out of the mouth of a man that knows nothing of Yahweh yet and calls him to arise and call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give us a thought that we may not perish. So again, this captain, is in, he's in shock. I don't, I don't know if this is anger necessarily. He doesn't know yet that Jonah is responsible for this, but he's just what are you doing? Get up. Everybody else is praying to their gods. Get up. Don't you have a God? 
Surely you do. Call out to him. Perhaps he will give us a thought. Now the problem wasn't that the God of the universe wasn't thinking about Jonah and that boat. The problem was that he was. That on that boat was a man who was running from God. My mind goes to Acts 27 and the story of how Paul is there on this boat and there's this great storm that has come along the people and because there's a believer on that boat, the people shall be spared. But in the case of this boat, because there's a man who knows God and is running from him, they're all in danger of perishing. The problem isn't that God's not thinking about them. God's thinking about them greatly. God has them right where he wants them. God has sent this storm for this very purpose. That's the reason they're in this peril. I couldn't find it and I didn't have time because it didn't come to me until right about the time we were walking in here. Maybe one of you remembers it better than I do. But somewhere between Psalm 25 and 35, there's a psalm where David cries out to God and basically says, get up off me and give me some room to breathe. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Is that a paraphrase, Gary? But you know what I'm talking about, right? Okay, find it, please. So much of the scripture is saying, God, don't turn your face away from me. God, don't forget about me. God, don't take your eyes off me. God, go with me everywhere I go. And there's this moment where David is wasting away in his bones, and his cry is, I, I'm not trying to be like, you know me, I'm not, I'm not trying to be light or flippant about the word of God, but it's essentially something like that. God, please turn your face away so that I can breathe. That when we're living in rebellion against God and there's sin within us and we, we feel his constant hand upon us, as great a gift as that is. Listen to me, friends. I can look back over my life and I can tell you that I've seen that God at various points has kept me on a very, very, very short leash. If you people would have known me in college, there was nothing about me that looked Christian. There was nothing about me that would have told you that someday that guy is going to be a preacher that's going to stand up and do his best to try and deliver to people the word of God. But I do see how God's hand was upon me, even in that time, restricting certain sins in my life. Yes, sir. I was close. Could you read it? I think so, yeah. It's exhausted. Doing battle with God is hard business. And so we see these men now, they are fixing to because this one who is on the boat knows God. That's why they're in this mess. That's why they're on this mess. That just as because Paul was on that one boat, they would be spared. Because Jonah was on this boat, they were about to perish. Verse 7. And they said to one another, come. Let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. Now these men, they clearly believe that someone's evil was the purpose for this storm coming. Now we know that's not always the case, right? You remember that the men, they came to Jesus and they said, hey, who sinned so that this man was born blind? Was it him or was it his parents? And you remember what Jesus' response was? Neither. It was that God's power might be displayed in him. So every time we find ourselves in the middle of this kind of trial, we don't immediately look around and say, who is sinning? 
Who is the one that has taken some of God's spoil and buried it under their tent within the camp? That's not always the answer, but sometimes it is. Here it was, that someone had sinned against God, that that's why this punishment had come upon them. And so they cast lots. Now we'll see all throughout the Old Testament, there are times when God's people, they are casting lots to discern his will. We're told about it in the book of Leviticus, that the priests were to do this. We see this even in the New Testament in Acts 1, whenever the apostles are seeking one to replace Judas, that they cast lots. Now, as best I can tell, this was probably something like two colored stones, that on one color of the stone was dark or, or black, on the other color of the stone, on the other side of the stone was light or white. So you'd have two stones, almost like dice, you would roll them. If the two light sides were facing up, that was a yes from God. If you rolled them and they came up black, that was a no from God. If it was one black and one light, that was a try again, hold your horses, hang tight kind of answer. Now, we don't see that any longer after Acts 1 with the coming of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came upon men with the word of God, with the spirit of God to inform us. Now, we're not told that this is a legitimate way to make decisions at this point. That's not the purpose here, but that was an ordinary way for men to seek the counsel of their gods. But we're reminded that even those who don't know Yahweh, even those who don't have the Spirit of God, that even with regards to the casting of a lot, it is still God who is in control. Proverbs 16, 33, the lot, same thing, the, the casting lots, rolling dice, flipping a coin, spinning a wheel, whatever you want to count as the most random thing in all the world, that that happens in the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. When we say that we believe that not one single subatomic particle in all the universe moves outside the will of God, we include those things that we count as chance. We see it right here because where do the lots land? They cast the lots and they fell on Jonah. Verse 8, then they said to him, tell us on whose account has this evil come upon us? So it seems as though they're leaving Jonah a way out. They don't know necessarily what this means yet. You understand? It's landed on Jonah, but they don't immediately go to, you're a prophet, you're running from God, we got to chunk you in the water, all that. That's not come upon them yet. They just know this has something to do with this guy. Maybe what's happening is we're going to look to him, and he's going to tell us who is at fault in this. So they're leaving him an out, essentially. They're saying, tell us, on account of whose will, on account of whose evil has this come upon us? Again, they still don't know. Maybe they believe they've offended Jonah. Maybe there's something that they have done, some food they've brought aboard, some joke they've told. Maybe there's something that they've done that has offended Jonah and thereby offended his, offended his God. Or maybe they're aiding him in evil. And so then they rattle off this list of questions. This isn't just a meaningless question. They're seeking to find something out, very critical at this moment. So they ask four questions. Number one, what is your occupation? Now you will notice he never answers that one. He never says, I'm a prophet of the Lord. I deliver God's word to men and to nations. But then the next three questions, they all come really pointing towards the same thing. Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? These all revolve around the same thing. Where have you come from so that we can know who is your God? You see, they were used to this idea that you had familial gods, you had regional gods, you had national gods. They wanted some concept of where have you come from so that we can know who your gods are so that we can figure out how to appease them. Verse 9, and he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea 
and the dry land. Now, these are the first words we hear from Jonah in all the book. Did you notice that? And his words are, I am a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Did he need to say that? If he says, I'm a Hebrew, doesn't this automatically mean that I fear Yahweh? Not necessarily. There was Baal worshipers. There was Asherah poles. There was all kinds of things that had crept in to the life of the Israelites by this moment. So he tells them, I'm a, I'm a fear of Yahweh. And then he goes on to give some more descriptions because how do you explain Yahweh to these polytheists? How do you explain Yahweh, the I am, the singular God of the universe? How do you explain him to a man that believe there's a God for everything? That believe that everybody has their own God? Because you say this to them. They say, the storm is coming and we cast lots and it's because of you. So tell us what the deal is. Where'd you come from? Who's your God? He says, my God's Yahweh. Your immediate response would be, oh, okay, so Yahweh's the God of storms. Or, oh, okay, I get it. Yahweh's the God of the ocean. Yahweh's the God of cancer. Yahweh's the God of money. Yahweh's the God of marriage. Yahweh's the God of whatever it is that's sitting in front of us. He makes clear, no, 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 no. My God is the God of heaven. He is the God of all that is. Remind us, Psalm 95.5, that the sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. You know, what got the early Christians in trouble was not necessarily that they worshiped Jesus Christ as Lord. It's that they worshiped him as the only Lord. The world is very comfortable with us having a God, generally speaking. They're comfortable with us having a God. They're comfortable with us coming to worship. They're comfortable with us obeying his nice little commandments. They're fine with all that. It's when we say that he is the only God who is. Not the highest amongst other, not one among many, not just your own little path to heaven. When we say there is one God in all the universe, that's very, very offensive to him. That's where the trouble sets in. But at this moment, he's telling him, this is who I fear. Verse 10, then the men were exceedingly afraid and they said to him, what is this that you have done? For these men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So we're not told when he told them, but apparently the answers, the, the back and forth. Again, I told you there's great brevity in this narrative. There's, there's not a lot, of, a lot of flowy dialogue back and forth, but apparently there was more. There's at least enough for us to know that he had told these people, this is who I am and this is what I'm doing. I'm running from the presence of God. So now at this point in the story, these, these sailors... These Phoenicians, I think, they know as much as we do, right? If you're reading this story for the first time or you're, you're standing in synagogue and someone's reading this perhaps for the first time, this is all you know. God came to Jonah, God told Jonah to go, and Jonah ran. That's what the sailors know too as of this moment. They don't know how the story ends. They don't know God's ultimate intent in this moment, but this is what they know. And you can imagine how they'd be flabbergasted then. If this God is who you say he is, Jonah, the one who made the earth and the seas, the God who is in heaven above. And by the way, Jonah, we're kind of believing you right now because we've never seen a storm like this. We're inclined to believe what you're saying because the lots took us to you. You tell us this is your God. Here's the storm. We've chunked everything we have overboard and nothing's happening. We're kind of believing you right now. That's the God you serve and you're running? Your confession doesn't match up with your life here, man. And I wonder how many of us, we run in circles where we are the only Christian around. How many of us find ourselves working in places or traveling in places or even in families where we're the only Christian for miles? And the question is, does our life match our confession? If God really is who we say he is, do people look at our life and think, I don't think you believe what you're saying to me, man. 
Because if what, half of what you're telling me about this God is true, your life would look radically different. Nothing about Jonah's life looked like he feared the God of the heavens and the earth. Nothing about Jonah's life looked like he feared a God who had literally controlled the seas. Verse 11. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. Number one, that's a hard word for me to pronounce because I have a slight lisp. It's a big confession for me. It's a hard word for me to confess. I mean, to, to, to pronounce. But he continues to repeat this. You notice at every stage, the storm gets worse. He's not letting up here, right? It's not, he, he's not playing the colder, warmer game. You know, warmer, 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 and so he's letting up. No, he's pushing deeper. He's giving them no way of escape. He's funneling them down towards his purpose. Do your life ever feel like that? God, aren't I on the right track? So give me a route, some way. That's our natural inclination. What happens? As soon as he lets his hand off, we're right back to where we were. Maybe we can find our own way out of this. No, he keeps ramping down. He's just hammering down on these guys. More and more and more tempestuous the sea becomes. So they're asking him, Jonah, you're the one that knows this God. What's it going to take to appease him? Again, these men were used to giving gifts to God, their gods. They were used to offering something to appease them, a, a bartering. And so you see a desperation in these men. They will do whatever Yahweh wants if they could just know what he wants. Reverse that, and that's Jonah. He knows exactly what God wants, and he ain't going to do it. Again, I tell you, how often do we come to God's word, and his will is spoken to us plain and simple. You, you, don't need a, you don't need a pastor to come alongside you and help you decipher it. You don't need a, a degree in theology to figure it out. It's plain and simple right here. You know what God wants from you, but you make every excuse under the sun not to do it. But these men, these pagan men, these polytheistic men, at this moment they were desperate enough, you just tell us what we got to do and we're going to do it. Verse 12, he said to them, that's Jonah, pick me up. And hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know that it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Jonah knows that the wages of sin is death, and he has sinned. Jonah deserves death. His belief is that the purpose for this storm is to impart that death. He believes that this storm has come to take his life in retribution for his sin. And so he thinks that the only rational explanation then is you give the sea what it wants. You give to God the payment that is due. You throw me into the sea, then the storm will have served its purpose, and everything will go calm. But it does seem telling to me that Jonah didn't even offer to go on the mission, right? He doesn't barter here. He doesn't doesn't repent. He, He doesn't beg for mercy. He just accepted death. I'd rather die than go do what God has called me to do. I mean, maybe that's not fair. Maybe he just doesn't see another way out. But you, but you don't hear that in the story, do you? It's not at this point that he's saying, okay, God, I give up. I submit. What you to- just give me one more chance. What you told me to do, that I will go do. At this point, he's saying, I guess I just die then. This is just where I die. I'm so opposed to what you have called me to do, God. What I find you calling me to do is so repulsive, I would rather give my life at sea, terrifying sea, deep sea, monster-filled sea, than this. I wish I could say I never saw myself like that. But how many times have I heard the will of God plain and clear from his word and I said, God, anything but that. I'd rather you just kill me. Just take me out today than this. Verse 13, nevertheless, 
The men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea, here's that word, grew more and more tempestuous against them. So it seems to me like this, they hadn't been long into the journey yet, right? If they think, if they think that they can get back, if they're thinking that in the middle of this storm, they can turn around and they can get back to land, it seems like maybe they hadn't been at sea that long, and Jonah's already asleep, and the storm has already come, and we see them, they're trying to do everything they can to get back to land, and, and maybe what their thought is, maybe they, unlike Jonah, are thinking, get the dude back to land, and maybe he can go on his mission. I don't think this is just sheer mercy from them, but maybe he can go and appease God in his own way. We really don't want to take this, life, this guy's life. But again, we see God narrowing it down. He's funneling them in. He's bringing them to that point where there's no way of escape. He won't let them get back. And, and, and I'm reminded of all those times whenever God's dealing with me or whenever I see God dealing with others. I, I've given some really, 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 I continue to give really bad counsel at times, not on purpose, but just because we're stupid sometimes and we say things that are thoughtless or unbiblical or unhelpful. But sometimes we realize that somebody comes to us and there's something going on in their life and it's the disciplinary hand of God upon them. And there's something within us that we don't like to see that. You, you know what I mean? It makes us uneasy about our own sin and just human nature, right? I, I love you. I don't like seeing you in this place. And what are we trying to do? We're trying to lift the burden off. We're trying to remove the burden. We're trying to calm your conscience. And what does God do in that moment? He just presses down more. He says, no, this is my hand upon him. And this doesn't mean that every time somebody comes to us, of course, right? Well, your mom sinned, your dad sinned, that's why this is happening. That's not the story. But that we don't do people well while we excuse them in their sin. The best thing we can do for a brother and sister is we can come alongside them and we can pray. We can encourage, we can help them find sin in their life if that's what they believe is happening. I've sinned against God in some way. I need help figuring this thing out. But to consistently tell them it's okay, it's okay, it's okay, that's not helpful. And that's what we see these men trying to do, trying to roll back to shore instead of doing what's necessary at this, at this moment. And I'm, I'm reminded, it's, I, I, gotta, I can just picture that, the, again, you're dealing with the sea and you're dealing with water and there's no controlling it. When, when we were at home, whenever we weren't up here dealing with Hurricane Harvey, um, before we started the shelter here, and we were at home and we were watching the floodwaters come um, and we're the highest part on the property, but watching the floodwaters kind of rise, and not knowing are they going to come into, is it coming to our house, going to come up the slab, what's, what's going to happen here? I remember the helpless feeling, realizing there's literally nothing I can do. Like I can build some little sandbags and throw them out there, but the reality is this thing keeps rising. It's just happening. Can you imagine being out on the sea? There's nothing you can do. There's no power strong enough to row back. And so where they say, oh, Lord, you have done as it pleases you. They're saying, this, God, this is of you. This is your will. You have led us here, and we submit. You've done all of this. It is your desire, clearly, that we would throw Jonah into the sea. You see, their, their fear, of course, because what do they say there? They, 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 they cry out, for one, therefore, I skip verse 11, therefore they call out to the Lord. So we see these non-Hebrews crawling out to the name of Yahweh. O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, Verse 14, excuse me. O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. So Jonah's not innocent, but there's been no trial yet, right? They don't really know what's going on. Maybe Jonah's confused. Maybe he's crazy. Maybe this is a suicide mission. We don't know what's going on. But it comes clear to them at this point, God, you have. You are the 
judge. You are the executioner. You have passed judgment. This is what you want, and so we're going to throw the guy overboard. But again, we see Jonah still, he's offering no prayer. He's offering no confession. He's offering no plea for mercy. He's just saying, you've got to chunk me overboard. You've got to grab me and throw me. And I wondered, every time I read this passage, I wonder, why was it necessary that they throw him? Why didn't Jonah just jump? And you can imagine how preachers can go into some really funky stuff that's not laid out in Scripture. Anything we come up with is speculation, I think, as to why it was necessary that they throw him. Was it necessary to throw him because that is an act of judgment instead of him jumping on his own because he didn't want to take his own life and he knew this was a certain death? We don't know. But he's told him what's going to have to happen is you're going to have to pick me up and throw me overboard. Verse 15, so they picked up Jonah and they hurled him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. So what I'm picturing here is... The way you would handle a grown man, I guess, is two people would hold his hands and his feet, right? I mean, that's, that's what I'm picturing. And just a one, two, and you go, isn't it? Now, here's the thing. You couldn't, th- human nature surely would cause you to hold on to the guy's wrist, wouldn't it? I'm, I'm just asking. Like the, the natural impulse, the, the, the natural impulse that we all have for survival I think you would have a really hard time whenever the guys go, if that's what they did, they have my hands, they have my feet, one, two, three, how do I not just clamp down on the guy's wrist and he's coming with me? But we don't see any of that. It's, I mean, it's just, there's, there's something about Jonah's acceptance of this fate that it doesn't usually get talked about in this, but it's really caught my attention in this. It's just like, oh, well, here's where I die. And so they throw him over, and just as Jonah has said, It stops. This, this hurling him or this, this throwing him, it's the same word that the scripture uses for God throwing the wind upon the sea, for the people throwing the stuff overboard. Again, I don't want to make too much out of this, but there is some symmetry here at least. So he hits the water and the storm stops, verse 16. So this is almost like a postscript here, right? So that's what's happened. That's the narrative. And then it's almost like fast forward now to some months later maybe. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, they offered a sacrifice to the Lord, and they made vows. Now, I don't think that this means, we're not told, but I don't think that we have to understand this to mean that they worshiped Yahweh exclusively. It seems like probably they just added him to the pantheon of gods that they had, right? We had this God, and he's really, really powerful now, and he spared us, and so we're going to offer a sacrifice. And so we don't know, did they offer this? Once the storm stopped, did they turn around and go back to Joppa? Did they go on to Tarshish? Did they make a trek to Jerusalem to worship the, the place where this God was called to, people were called to worship this God? We don't know, but they offered a sacrifice, and it says that they made a vow. Again, I think this was probably just a pledge to future sacrifices. Hey, God, when we're sacrificing to the gods, Yahweh, when we're sacrificing to the gods, you made our list. Congratulations. I don't know. I don't want to give them too little credit. Maybe they did become full-on Jews, and they converted and worshiped Yahweh alone, but not terribly likely. Because this is what I see in the lives of men today. Again, I tell you that in many circles you travel in, you're probably the only Christian, right? Depends on, probably for many of us, depends on how soon we came to Christ is the reality. Oftentimes, the longer you lived separated from Christ, the greater your circle of non-Christians is. And that can be an incredible blessing. But how often do people come to you in these times of turmoil it's a bad bad report from the doctor or financial turbulence or something like that they come to you because you're the guy that knows God you're the guy that will pray or the girl that will that will pray or you're the girl that will 
girl that will pray. And so they come to you and they, they ask you to pray and they join you in prayer in some way or another. And then God gives them what they want. And they say, hey, this stuff really works. This prayer stuff really works. This fasting stuff really works. This seeking God really works. And they pledge themselves to him. They offer a penance of a sacrifice and a vow to future sacrifices. And then you look up and you realize there's nothing that's changed. Seems as though that's perhaps what's happened here. And so there's verse 17 here. Um, I think that it goes better with what comes next. So we'll, we'll touch on verse 17 God willing, next week, but as my story closes, if that's what we're viewing this as, as the story closes, we've got a guy that's been chunked into the sea, the sea is calm, but surely he's dead, or surely he's about to die, and that, that seems to be the tone of this story. I told you, the way this, the story ends is with the hero of the story sitting under a withered vine, pouting against God for sparing a people in the hot, blistering sun. So we've got Jonah, and he's in the ocean, and what do we do with that? It seems to me there's three things we can take away from it this evening. Number one, that you will see how brutally sinful and rebellious God's people can be. That we must take great care that we do not at any moment, as I told you earlier, become callous to the voice of God. That we seek at all times to know his will and to do his will and to just do it in a settled kind of way was it Billy Graham that said the Bible said it that settles it or something like that Bible said I believe it that settles it something yeah yeah but should we live like this I'm going to spend my days seeking and knowing the will of God and doing it no matter what recognizing that every day I play around with even the most minor of disobedience I may well be callousing my heart I may well be giving myself over to something that leads me to a place just like this. Number two, that we would see the way our sin and our disobedience affects those around us. No one sins alone. There's no such thing as a purely personal sin. That the sins we commit, they may well drag down with us who knows how many people. People you love, people you don't even know, perhaps. But there's no such thing as a purely personal sin. And number three, that we would see God's gracious love towards the people of Nineveh. See all that God went through to cause these people to repent. And the fact that he did it in a way that made his power and his glory known. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you for your goodness and your mercy and your grace. We thank you for your power and your providence. We thank you, in short, for all that you are. Father, I thank you personally. I thank you for allowing my voice to hold out this evening. I thank you for these people. I pray that they would be blessed as a result of hearing and studying and knowing your word this evening. Father, I pray for this group that's about to meet down the hall as they discuss financial matters, Father, and, and their own personal finances. I pray that you would bless them in that. Father, I just pray that your hand would be upon us and that you would cause us to be a joyfully obedient people to you. God, we love you. We thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.